This is Cody Turner. In this episode, I speak with my friend Chris Gunderman about contemporary U.S. politics and the 2020 presidential election. For the past eight months or so, Chris has been a campaign staffer on the Pete Buttigieg campaign. And here he tells me what it was like being a staffer on the campaign. And also he explains to me why he's what you might call a democratic centrist. I think this episode serves as a nice contrast to one of the most recent episodes that I did, which was focused on democratic socialism. So buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. storm coming, Mr. Wayne. What was it like working for the Pete Buttigieg campaign? Uh, well, campaigning is kind of everything you expect it to be in terms of you eat a Dunkin' Donuts for breakfast every day and really? Subway for dinner. Oh, dude, American runs on Dunkin'. Yeah, no, it's uh, patriotic. We were supporting the local economy. Um, but you, you know, everyone else, I was lucky enough to be sleeping in my own bed every night. Everyone else was put in what's called supporter housing, which is when you're paired with an entirely random supporter of the candidate really? in your area. And they give you food. They give you a place to sleep. And uh, you just crash there for as long as they'll have you. And I actually know some people for whom supporter housing did not work. So there's this one guy who was put in supporter housing, and they literally timed his showers and told him if he took too long, and then he had to find new supporter housing. But I didn't have to deal with that. That sounds kind of intense. Oh, all campaigning was insanely intense. I'd wake up, and then they'd be like, oh, Pete's coming to your town tomorrow. Get rid of, like, get ready with a venue for, like, 1,300 people. And it's like, oh, shit, okay. So what's, like, a typical day in the life of a political campaigner? Or is it, or is there not a typical day? It's just different depending on what's going on. Uh, it's you kind of know, you kind of don't know. So a lot of the times, there's things like a debate that you know you got to pr- kind of prioritize your week around because if the debate goes well, you're going to be spending the next two days maximizing your outreach and like maximizing the impact of having a good debate performance. Whereas if it goes badly, it doesn't really impact anything because you don't want to talk about it that much. So you move on to the next thing. Depends what stage of the primary you're in. So like that last week was called GOTV. That was nuts. I didn't know where I was going to be sent to around the state really? every single day. Um, they'd be like, hey, we need you in Franklin, New Hampshire. Hey, we need you up in Plymouth, New Hampshire. And you just have to go there. And it's uh, it was a lot of fun, but it was also really nuts because I, I know people that ruin their cars because they have to drive in like whiteouts and they slid off the road and got the undercarriage ripped off and things like that. And, you know, it's just, it was it was fun. I mean, when you're young, there's a reason to hire 23-year-olds with no connections to do it because you just got to be willing to do whatever the campaign takes. What drew you to Pete Buttigieg? Um, so mainly I am a fan of sanity in politics, and it seems like it's been lacking a lot recently, and I really wanted someone younger. Uh, and let me get into this a little bit more because I think Pete is was an exceptional political talent. I think people knew that initially, but I also thought... Definitely a gifted politician. I, almost, And we can get into this, but I almost think he's too gifted in a lot of ways, at least in terms of the effect that he has on me. One way I've described him is I think he's like a hyper-articulate political robot constructed in a political <laughs> laboratory. But it's extremely impressive, but I almost it's almost too perfect that it almost erodes his authenticity in my eyes in, mm-hmm. some, in some ways. Yeah, no, that's something I heard about a lot because people, I'm sure you're familiar with the tests, like who would you rather have a beer with? But right. They've offered like the Democratic and the Republican nominee for like the last 10 presidential elections, and whoever wins that test wins the presidency. And for a lot of people, voting, especially for president, is an emotional task. So when you have someone that comes across as so well-polished, bordering on you know seeming artificial, like you talked about, that's absolutely 
uh, a problem that I think he has learned to deal with better. I think he's sh learned to show more emotion on the debate stage. It's interesting because some people uh, sound a lot better on a debate stage where you get a minute to explain your whole foreign policy. And some people do better when they're forced to talk for long periods of time. Trump is a great debater because he repeats the same things. It's pretty simple. You don't, you've heard perfect it before. Perfect phone call. Yeah, perfect phone call. He's I'm a very stable genius. <laughs> it was good. I was scared. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, in Pete's case, there was this weird phenomenon where whenever people saw him speak live, they were very impressed, or uh, speak live, I should say, in like a town hall where he's right. able to give a full speech and answer questions. Um, I think that really shows that America's attention span in politics is really just dangerously declining. Like, you know, yep. and that shows like most people in New Hampshire, fortunately, are older, not as locked into the social media. They want to see the people up close. But nationally, in today's era, it's really tough to win an election if people like you when they see you in person and go see you speak in person. But if their only introduction to you is a debate stage and you're trying to give very complex answers um, and you might come off sounding pre-programmed. Uh, that said, he remembered my mother's name three months after meeting her for the first time. Really? Um, he remembered that I write a lot for fun and that I was a drummer. So I can say that he it wasn't pre-programmed. I think he's naturally socially somewhat introverted. Um, so like imagine how difficult this is a job for him to run for. But at the same time, he remembered stuff. And you know, the So you find him authentic in your personal interaction oh, with Pete Buttigieg? Absolutely. I um I volunteered on several campaigns in college and um you know, the candidate always portrays himself a certain way and everyone knows that you're trying to portray a certain image to win an election. But he was, uh, and I was worried that that would be the case in a presidential. And I don't know if this is how everyone talks about the candidate, but in his case, at least, it seemed very accurate. The advertising lived up to the billing. Like he and I talked about British literature for a while because that was my first English class ever was Brett Litt. And uh, like, that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, and I do, you know, I, I, I do get that they're, because of the attention economy element of it, these politicians probably have to have these rehearsed talking points that they have to say and repeat a lot. Oh, so yeah. if you're really following this stuff, it might oh, come yeah. across as redundant, but because there's just so much digital content that's constantly competing oh, for yeah. our attention, some people might only see one little blip of that candidate, so that candidate's gonna wanna go to their talking points so the people who only see that blip know what the main message of that candidate is. So I understand that there are certain dynamics at play just that kind of forces that uh, stuff that might come across as inauthentic to someone who's really paying attention. Well, I think that that's why you see, I think Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in America right now uh, because mm -hmm. he never strays from his talking points. De yeah. de moderate, Democrat, Republican, you know that he's going to talk about Medicare for all, the billionaires and the millionaires. And same thing on Trump's side. It's going to be build a wall, Mexico will pay for it, yada, yada, yada. Compare that to... Yeah, when Lincoln was running for president, he had 15 minutes debates, 15 minutes to make your opening remarks, the other person had 15 minutes to respond. You know, we don't have the attention span for that anymore, and we're getting the government we deserve when we want a government by catchphrase as opposed to sound policy. And I think our current debate formats prioritize attacking someone else to yeah. get your name out there so you don't seem like you disappear from the stage, but also surface-level policy. I mean, part of me, as a Pete supporter, there's obviously a little bit of a rift between our campaign and Amy Klobuchar's, but I really respect uh, What her. do you mean? They're best friends. They uh, love each other. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, you're right. <laughs> but like, you know, whatever whatever your feelings are on Amy Klobuchar, it's, yeah, I feel bad for up there listing a resume that's five pages long and a 30-second announcement. Like, no wonder they all have to go over, except Joe Biden, who always stops himself. And I wish I wish he wouldn't do that. Like, everyone else is ignoring the rules. You should, too. But, um, yeah. I don't know. Poor it's, Joe. Poor Joe. Like, you know, no matter who you support, poor Joe. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, no, I totally agree with you in terms of how just fucked up um, the debates are structured. Well, I was actually talking about this with one of my discussion sections today, but it's just, yeah, it seems, I mean, I don't know how we get around this, but it seems like these debates, this, this civil discourse is so consequential. It shouldn't be beholden to the profit motives of these, of these TV networks. Like, first of all, I feel like there shouldn't be an audience. This is a lot mm-hmm. of something that people have been talking about just mm-hmm. because it colors how you perceive the debate. When you have people booing and clapping, mm-hmm. it becomes more of a, a sensationalistic spectacle. And I and additionally, I do I agree with you in that I feel like a lot of the moderators ask questions that are designed to pit the candidates against one another and and have people just focus on petty stuff when we should be talking about more substantial policy stuff. So I don't, maybe I heard someone saying that maybe we should have the debates on C-SPAN or something like that, but (laughs) I don't don't know if that's the right answer, but there does need to be, it seems to me, a fundamental restructuring of how we go about uh, debating. I agree with that, but I would also, it's pretty easy to see why they're doing it this way, right? Acrimony sells. Anger and dispute sells and draws in viewers, whereas the boring debates are the ones where everyone gets along and talks about what they want to do. It's why it's why we now have media that is prioritized around your partisan identity. You've got Fox News, which is all about riling up anger, and you've got the numerous news sources on the left that are all about riling up anger at the opposing side. No one wants to read something now where it's like, hey, yeah, you know, if it's a, if it's the New York Times, yeah, the Republicans did a really good job on this, and everyone gets high marks for uh, bipartisanship. Like, I wish we lived in that world, but most people who are tuning into this race now want to see who can be more dominant, who can be alpha, and they're all trying to prove that they can beat Trump on a debate stage, which I think is inherently the wrong strategy because the way you wrestle a pig isn't in the mud with it. You know, the way you... Yeah, you can't beat Trump at his own game. Exactly, and that was one of the big reasons why I joined Pete's campaign is because I fundamentally really believe he is the Democrat best position to beat Trump by his refusal to get visibly irritated or to engage in mudslinging or slandering. Like I never felt the need to insult the supporters of or, or another candidate online. And I would have been personally disappointed if he had. Uh, and that was something that I was really proud to be part of because look, it's kind of, you know, at this point in the Democratic primary, it's pretty clear everyone hates everyone else, which is really disheartening. But I felt if we want to reintroduce civility into our politics and kind of make Trump stand out for the aberration he is, I wanted to expose him on three things. I wanted to expose him on his military hypocrisy. So what's the better way to, you know, he claims to be this big patriot who loves the country, put him on the stage with the veteran. He claims to be defending the Christian right, put him on the stage with someone that's pretty religious. But also in the same stage, he's saying he's modern day presidential. I think a lot of people are rebelling at what we're seeing right now in a national discourse. And I think... yeah. The best way to make him stand out is the abhorrent monster he is. Sorry to any Trump supporters listening to this. Um, is put him up there with someone that's going to keep talking about the issues and not engage in insults. I think. Plus, I'm pretty sure Trump doesn't know how to pronounce his name anyway, so it's hard to insult something or come up with a booty. crude nickname. I just call him Booty. I, well, you know, that's not that's not that's, that's not, not an insult. It, <laughs> I don't mean it in, this, in an insulting way. I just I don't know. But yeah, it's a hard name to pronounce. Um, I want so. I guess I want to raise some objections that I get, uh, that I talk to people who will object to Buttigieg from the left and just get your response to them. Yeah. So like one objection is he's funded by billionaires and he he's kind of a corporate shill and he's very inauthentic. Like a lot of the, a lot of the people, a lot of the Bernie supporters that I follow will view him in this light. Um, 
How do you respond to that, to that billionaire charge? He's. I think it's an interesting campaign tactic taken by Bernie because you always see him deploy it with whoever happens to be challenging him in the polls, that they're corrupt, that they're owned by the establishment. And on one hand, when you raise a purity test so high that no one else can clear it, that's a good electoral strategy because he's the only one that's he's the only one that hasn't taken money from billionaires or from the donor class for a very long time. But on the other hand, what has he accomplished? That's a separate task. Who, Bernie? Yes. Yeah. Um, but the other thing that I want to talk about in that regard is 0.17% of our donations have come from billionaires. That's true. You can look it up. 0.17%. So you wouldn't know that if yeah. you were just watching the debates. Yeah, exactly. Because Bernie, one of Bernie's huge talking points against Pete is, well, he has all these billionaire donors, wine caves. And... Well, you repeat a lie often enough and it becomes truth. But, you know, the other thing I want to say is that Yes, Bernie is lucky enough to have a massive email list of people that feel very passionately about his vision and chip into it. Most people, especially when you're coming from nowhere, don't have that resource. So on one hand, yeah, Pete could swear off donations from everyone except those that want to give him money that fall into the acceptable social class. Then he's putting himself at a massive disadvantage when he was already at a disadvantage coming into this race to Bernie Sanders. Or he could not do that and do what he's done in terms of accepting money from whoever wants to fund him. And then in that instance, he gets attacked. So it's a lose-lose no matter what. And if you're going to lose anyway, you might as well get the money to run a competitive race. The third thing I'll say is that, um, for instance, if Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders or anyone who is a billionaire, you can only give the same amount, $2,800. Right, there's and, a limit. Yeah, and I find it very hard to believe that if Bernie Sanders were to give $2,800 to Pete's campaign, that Pete's going to turn around and start talking about how great Medicare for all is, as opposed to his health care plan. So I think... It's a convenient political cudgel. I think it's a very crude tool, and I think it's very misleading. And I think that that is one of the main issues I have with uh, Bernie Sanders in his campaign at, uh, at large is that I think he's very willing to traffic in things that he knows aren't exactly true and are misleading. And I also disagree with a cult of personality that I think we're seeing on both for n numerous candidates on both the right and the left. We shouldn't be getting into politics to support a person. We should be getting into there to support... Uh, their ideas or what they stand for in their vision. Yeah, I mean, do you think, but I mean, I definitely do think that Bernie genuinely believes that there shouldn't be a lot of money in politics. And like you said, if what you said is true about Pete, like there's a very small proportion of his donors that are billionaires or whatever, and there's a limit, $2,800. But would you, would you agree that up to a certain point, when you, when you cross a certain threshold, money in politics can be a bad thing. So this is one of the things that kind of scares me about Bloomberg, mm -hmm. which we can talk about, is there does seem to be something about him just kind of buying his way onto the stage. And for him, he's using his own billions. He's not beholden. Mm -hmm. So I guess you could say that's actually a... It, one could potentially say that's a pro of Bloomberg because he's not beholden to corporate interest because it's entirely his own money. So mm -hmm. he can actually um, spew out his own beliefs. But on the flip side of that, yeah, I do think there's something weird that, you know, he's not on the ground talking to voters. He's just kind of waiting in the wings, flooding the airways mm -hmm. with all, you know, with all of these ads, using his billions of dollars, using this money to get on the stage. And I don't know, there's there's something that about it that just rubs me the wrong <clears throat> way and does seem to go against the ideals of a democracy. So, no, yes, Yes, you're completely correct. With regards, I'm going to answer about Bloomberg first and yeah. then the original party question. Uh, with regards to Bloomberg, yeah, it rubs me the wrong way that he's able to, what's he spent now, $500 million in ads? 
something, something like that. It's crazy. But on the other hand, when it's, what's even more terrifying is that's such a tiny portion of what he can and will spend. But on the other hand, it's not like he's going to voters and saying, hey, you vote for me, I'll give you 200 bucks. He's only giving them ads and then they're choosing who they support. So on one hand, maybe it says more about the health of our democracy that you can flood it with this much money in ads and people are uninformed enough to make their decision based off of one television ad. But it is an important distinction that he's not giving them money directly. He's paying for television ads and people are seeing it. Right, um, it's not a direct bribe. Like, yeah. hey, take this money, kid. Exactly. You know what to do. And, you know, that, that I just want to point that out. And I would also like to point out that it is at least good that we know that he's not being funded by Russia. And I, I should also say now at this point, we as Americans should be very, very suspicious of anyone that our arch nemesis internationally is supporting and wants to become president. Um, for me, it should almost be disqualifying whether you're Republican or Democrat, if Russia wants someone to be president, we probably shouldn't let them be president. There's probably a reason for that, and I think we should look into that a little bit too. But well, with I don't know. But I wouldn't. I don't know about that. If someone, if Russia, if Vladimir Putin says I want this person to be president, then we just say, oh, Putin said he wanted you. Sorry. No, but I you're think out. that we should be very skeptical about why Putin would want that, because Putin generally doesn't want what's good for America. But he wants we, us to be politically dysfunctional. Do we? Well, that's what I think. Like I know there's news reports the past week that well first. There's, I heard reports that Putin wants Trump to win again. Then I heard reports that, no, actually, Putin wants Bernie to win. Then some people were saying, well, Putin just wants Bernie to be the nominee because he thinks that Trump is definitely going to handedly beat Bernie. And my reaction to it was, does Putin really, does he, is he articulating to America his genuine beliefs about what he wants, or is he just trying to cause political dysfunction in the system? And he's saying whatever he has to say to make that come to fruition. I think if you're Russia and you're dealing with a lot of your own problems, like they've got demographic problems that make ours look like nothing. For instance, they've got economic stagnation that looks like our period of economic angst to look like nothing. He wants us to be as unable to mobilize to solve problems or to stand with allies as possible. I don't think he cares if it's Trump or Bernie. I think they're both as good to him as long as they're both ripping apart the country. Wouldn't which, you want you know, Bernie? Because Bernie like, is more favorable towards Russia, it seems like. I mean, I could go to the honeymoon in 1988. Oh, he was oh, partying. Okay, that's thing. what you meant. First of all, I think I do think there's a good chance Bernie beats Trump in a general election. Um, but I would also say, <clears throat> I don't think he even. I think he's viewing that as, hey, either Trump beats Bernie, in which case we've got more of what we've already had, which is terrifying, or Bern, uh, either Trump beats Bernie, which is when we get more of what we had, which is already terrifying, or Bernie wins, and in which case. And this is another reason why I supported Pete. Bernie wins, in which case the Republicans manage to find what they stand for again in a quick second, which is everything Bernie isn't. For instance, and I say that because right now the GOP has abandoned its traditional morals, what it stands for entirely. Um, now there are a cult of personality around Donald Trump. What does a cult of personality do when the cult leader is dead? Would you describe it as a cult? Do you mean that literally? Um, I don't know what the definition of a cult is, but I know that what they stand for is what Big Daddy tells them to stand for. And that's a cult of personality. <laughs> Daddy. In my, well, I mean, you know, is it? look at what happens when people leave the, Democrat, the Republican Party. Pete, he, uh, Trump verbally spanks them, I mean, equivalently on Twitter. But um, and I think that there are a lot of Republicans, and Mitt Romney's the only one bold enough to say this, but they're saying that whatever's going on now, this is so bad, we can't let this continue. But they're also not going to be willing to work with someone that is standing for the exact opposite of whatever they believe. I'm saying there's a reason that Putin isn't backing any of the centrist candidates, whether it's Bill Weld on the Republican side 
or atta- actively attacking Joe Biden yeah. or Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar because he knows that there's a chance that our political system actually heals and is actually able to respond to these threats, pass domestic legislation we def- definitely need to, and take action on the global stage. There's a reason Wall Street isn't worried about a Bernie victory because even if he were to win, there's a 5% chance that he'd actually pass what he wants to. So I think all tr- all Putin wants to return to your original question is dysfunction. Uh, Republicans that hate Democrats, Democrats that hate Republicans, and half the country ripping apart the other half of the country. Um, so that's kind of what I meant. I want to get your perspective on this idea, some might call it a conspiracy theory, that the DNC is rigged against Bernie Sanders. And so, you know, there's this, people on the left will say that the DNC stole the nomination from Bernie and the DNC's corrupt, and they're just trying to maintain power, the liberal corporate establishment, the military industrial complex, all this stuff. And that they've done everything that they can to exclude candidates that they view as outsiders. So I, I experienced, I, uh, I was tending to believe that some of this was true as a f- supporter of Andrew Yang, where I constantly see MSNBC, who people will accuse to be in cahoots with the DNC, um, almost systematically excluding Yang from polls where he should have been on the polls or misspelling his name. And they did the same thing to Tulsi, and it seems like they've done the same thing to Bernie. And another recent example that comes to mind is how they just changed the rules all of a sudden to allow Michael Bloomberg to go on the stage and, and compete. Um, I think it used to be you had to have a certain amount of grassroots donors or something to be on the stage, and they changed the rules so as to seemingly allow Bloomberg to occupy the stage. So just what's your general perspective on that view of the DNC? I think in 2016, it's it's 100% fair to say that it was rigged against Bernie. Um, so what happened in, in 2016? So there were, these, there were these superdelegates. Are you familiar with how the superdelegate? So basically there are... How, camp, how primaries work is you compete for votes in states, but it's not entirely of all the votes that de- determines who the nominee is. It's how many delegates you get to send to the convention. Right. And super delegates are like the Barack Obamas, the Hillary Clintons, the people that have been in the party for a really long time who can vote for whatever candidate they want. They're not bound to who, who the people voted for. It's kind of the electoral college only for a primary because they can vote for whichever candidate they think is best and they're not bound to who the people that voted in the primaries. So how many superdelegates are there? Uh, a lot less now, because after 2016, I believe the DNC reduced the superdelegates from like 500 to 100 or maybe it was like 1000 to 500. They got rid of them a lot, largely because of the because of the perception that they were favoring Hillary Clinton, which they did. They voted for Hillary Clinton overwhelmingly in 2016. But I would also say Hillary Clinton had more votes than Bernie Sanders anyway in 2016. So did Bernie have more delegates going into the convention? No, Hillary had more delegates, but then the superdelegates voted for her anyway. Okay. So, you know, on one hand, it's easy to see why there's this conspiracy theory. But on the other hand, conspiracy theories are always kind of there for a reason, for an agenda. Ask yourself why someone would want to further this. And I think now in the 2020, where Bernie is by all le- established, by all measures, currently the front runner in delegates in the popular vote, however you want to cut it. I don't think you can argue that the DNC is rigged against him. I think that there are people that would like him to not be the nominee, but that's their right. There are people in the Republican Party that didn't want Trump to be the nominee, but ultimately the will of the people uh, won out. So if Bernie gets a majority of the delegates, he'll be the nominee. I don't know how that's a rigged system. Isn't there a debate right now about whether they should choose the nominee based upon... So if he has the majority, he definitely gets it. But what if he just has a plurality? 
So that's interesting because we've never had, by this point in the primary last cycle, it was Hillary or Bernie, one or the other, the establishment favorite, the grassroots favorite. Right. <clears throat> What's different about now is that it appears very likely that we're headed for a brokered convention. Mm-hmm. And do you like, you know, how that is, people can vote, certain candidates won't get the threshold, their delegates will become free to vote for other people. Right. Okay. So as I understand it, the argument is Bernie... Assume get, I know nothing. I really don't know that much. Okay. So normally in a convention, um, that uh, if you're a delegate for Warren, say, yeah. and Warren, and you get sent to Milwaukee as a delegate for Warren, in the first ballot, you have to vote for the candidate who sent you there. There's a whole registration process. To declare to be a delegate for someone, you need to get elected in your home state. I, I as the campaign organizer, needed to certify you. You need to certify that you're a Democrat in good standing. Gotcha. And then you had to run in this election. You had to win. And then you get to go to Milwaukee. So could this could this manifest itself where Bernie comes in with a plurality of the delegates and then a lot of the centrist candidates don't meet the threshold and they team up against Bernie? That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. Bernie could come in with 40% of the delegates and no one else has more than 30 or more than 25, say. But if on the second round, Bernie gets none of those delegates and everyone else, and there are two candidates with 25% of the delegates and they get 50, or that guy, the, the, the guy or woman that has, that stayed in, who's a centrist candidate, gets 50%, they would win the convention. That's not a conspiracy. That's what the rules have always been. So the response to this is Bernie saying the will of the people should be what passes, not the rules of the convention. In other words, whoever has a plurality coming in should get the nomination. Which on one hand is true, but that's also not the rules because if you look at the field right now, Bernie locked down the progressive lane very effectively. When Elizabeth Warren backed away from Medicare for all, um, she really shot herself in the foot. I think she would be probably the presumptive nominee if she hadn't done that. But anyway, he's locked down the progressive wing. There's still Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Michael Bloomberg, Amy Klobuchar contesting for the centrist lane. And yeah, collective or individually, none of them comes even close to Bernie. But if you add them up, they're in 60, 65 percent, which is not just a majority. It's a super majority. So maybe Bernie has more in, more individuals supporting him. But ideologically, if he doesn't have a majority, we go to a second round and then we see what happens. My guess is that I just think it's very unhealthy to a political sphere where the opposite happens. If if seventy if if there were if there were one centrist candidate getting thirty percent and then everyone else there were like five or six progressive candidates each getting ten or fifteen percent. Right. You know, you could have the same argument only in reverse. Yeah. That said, I will say I think the DNC screwed Bernie in twenty sixteen and I think that they are doing a lot to try and not let him be the nominee now. The can don't the centrist candidates have to know that they're splitting the vote and it's, it seems like it's, it's about time that a lot of them should drop out. It's way past time. Um, I don't know who to, where, Tam, where, Tom Steyer, Tam, where Tom Steyer lies in terms of the progressive versus the centrist lane. I just don't know enough about his policy positions. But just seeing him on the debate stage the other night, I'm just like, dude, what are you still doing here, bro? His, he's hanging his hat on South Carolina. Um, and apparently he's pulling pretty well there, too. Yeah, I think he's third. Um, yeah. Second or third. But I will say, yes. Uh, it's the interest. It's the whole argument of self-interest. In 2016, the same thing happened on the Republican side. That's happening on the Democratic side now. You had this guy with named Trump who came out of nowhere, who's arguing for wacky policies that no one in the RNC wants or takes seriously. And you've got three or four centrist candidates: the John Kasichs, the Marco Rubios, the Ted Cruz's. I don't know, one of the other ones that doesn't want to give up their chance at being president, so they stay in until the bitter end, not seeing that their own myopic view hands the election to a nut job. I think that something similar is happening on the Democratic side where they're all so eager to run against Trump and now there are so many personal vendettas, i.e. Pete versus Amy, that 
No one wants to drop out. And if it's going to a brokered convention, why should they? Don't they want to have the chance to win those delegates for themselves? I will say, though, I think South Carolina is the last of the early states needs to act as the funnel that Iowa normally is. Um, I think that there are a number of candidates that already have infeasible paths forward, but those paths will become even more infeasible if they do terribly in South Carolina. And I hope that they will drop out because I think in a way 2016 was very accurate in showing the divisions within the party in terms of a centrist lane and a moderate lane or a centrist lane and a progressive lane. Yeah. And I think that that's really the referendum that the, the Democratic Party needs now is we need to have one person representing the progressive lane. That's going to be Bernie and one person representing the centrist lane. And then we can see where the loyalties of the party truly lie. Do you think that that'll happen before we get to Milwaukee or do you think that it will end up being a broker convention? Honestly, the way it's going right now, I think there's a pretty good chance Bernie has a majority. Um, then, th- then it's game, set, match, yeah, right? Then it's over and then he's the nominee. Uh, the question is, would Bloomberg run third party, which is possible. Um, uh, but I will say, if he gets the majority, then he's then it's game set match. None of this matters. Mm-hmm. Um, what becomes tricky is like, what if he's within like five? The, you need to get, I think it's a thousand five hundred and fifty-one delegates to be, have the majority plus one. Don't quote me on that. I believe that's the number. I remember seeing a number that was that yeah. seemed like that was right. Um, like, what happens if he's like ten short? Because then it's really hard to say that he doesn't have the majority. But you know, the argument otherwise is. Yeah, I mean, part of me wants, you know, the question becomes then, do you want Amy Klobuchar to stay in just so she has a chance at winning Minnesota to prevent Bernie from getting the delegates there, but in which case she's going to be splitting the centrist vote elsewhere, you know? So I really think, I don't know, it'll be interesting because Bloomberg's got the money to stay in this thing forever. So if you're just doing game theory and you're Joe Biden and you finally win South Carolina, does Bloomberg look around and say, all right, my money's going to be better served by propping up Joe Biden? I don't know. Uh, seems like if he really cares about a Democrat beating Trump, that should yeah. be what he should do at that point. Well, that's what we, that's what all the candidates should do. So I respect Andrew Yang for knowing, hey, he did I'm, the not, math. I'm not going to win this thing. He did the math. He did the math. He did the math. <laughs> math is sexy. Boy, yeah. um, and, gang, gang, gang. And <laughs> here's how Yang can still win the 2020 nomination. Um, <laughs> uh, and I also want to say I'm very, like, I've got my own personal favorites for candidates yeah but at this point i just want a healthy democratic process and if bernie gets the majority of the democratic delegates he should be the nominee like i will say that i don't have an agenda like i support whoever the nominee is and i will vote for them Mm. Um, your hatred for trump runs that deep yes okay i i dislike trump more than i dislike bernie and i think bernie is a good person i think he diagnoses the right problems i just disagree with his solutions yeah, it does seem like there, I don't know if you'd call it a civil war within the Democratic Party, but it does seem like a lot of the followers of Bernie could potentially, at, at the worst, they could potentially riot if they think that Milwaukee is handled in an unfair way. And and at best, it seems like they, they won't vote, they won't settle for the moderate centrist candidate. They're not going to take your perspective and say, yeah, let's just support whoever the but, Democratic nominee is. But on one hand, that's not how democracy works. Oh, my guy didn't get it. So I guess I'm not going to do my guess. My what I would say to those Bernie supporters is, okay, fine. Your guy didn't get it. Are you really going to hand a second term to Trump? And I guarantee you, you have much more in common with whoever the Democratic nominee is than you do with Trump. You know, like that's an incredibly myopic and short sighted view to have. And I would also say 
you don't throw a hissy fit if your nominee doesn't get it. If I mean, if Pete Buttigieg doesn't get it, well, I'm I think not they view s- it as corrupt. It's not just oh, he put in a good fight and he lost in a fair election. A lot if of the Bernie gets- supporters I talk to again think that the DNC is corrupt. They're trying to cheat Bernie, and they're gonna they're trying to do it again right now. Well, that's something you see from. I mean. There are rules. We don't live in a majoritarian democracy. We live in a democracy with institutions and rules. You play by those rules, and if you lose, you lose. You win, you win. If he gets the majority, he'll be the nominee. And if he doesn't, then we follow the rules of the convention. And if they don't like that, that's unfortunate. But I'm sure that they would very much like it if they were on the other side. Um, just because it's not corrupt. It's it's not corrupt at all if more people want a different person to be the nominee. It's corrupt if Bernie goes in with a majority and then the DNC is like, actually, nope, we don't want you. Hillary Clinton's the nominee again. That is corrupt. <laughs> Just Hillary out of nowhere. Like then, then there will be riots, and I, <laughs> then I, and I wouldn't put a pastor. Um, but all I'm saying is, you know, you, there, is this, there is this divide in the Democratic Party, and I think to a large extent it's a very artificial divide because— for instance, there's a lot of hatred from the, um, that's a strong word. There's a lot of anger from the progressive lane towards Pete Buttigieg, for instance. So much, dude. Yeah. And on so one much. hand, I think the that- The people that, I mean, you heard the last podcast I did. Yeah. They really hated Pete Buttigieg. Well, and I think that that's also one of the issues I have with the Bernie Sanders campaign. But I also think we're still talking about getting everyone health care. We think it's a human right. Bernie made that change and we're agreeing with him that everyone should have health care. Right, so when you go down the list of policies yeah. and you're asking people who are in the centrist lane and the progressive lane, there's actually a lot more yeah. overlap yeah. than you would expect given how much animosity there is between the two lanes. Yeah, it's not like we're saying, no, we don't want poor people to have health care. No, we don't want rich people to be able to access public benefits. We're saying we want everyone to have health care too. We just have a different way of going about it. Why can't we have, Why can't we have a respectful disagreement about the best way to get there and recognize that we all still want the same thing. You know what I mean? I, it's it's just mind-boggling to me. And this is the danger of primaries is that they magnify the differences. But also it's so short-sighted to sow divisions within the party over really, frankly, minor differences. Mm-hmm. When there's a much greater threat out there. Like, if I, I bet that there are a number of Bernie Sanders supporters. Those people you interviewed, um, the presidents of the Young Democratic Socialists here at UConn. Right. I bet that they probably wouldn't vote if Pete is the nominee facing off against Trump. In oh, which definitely case, not. And I would love to ask them. Not to put words in their mouth, but I, I Well, I'd love to ask them then, fine, do you really think, do you really, can you honestly say that someone that wants to do Medicare for all that wants it is worse than someone that wants to get rid of the Affordable Care Act entirely? Like, are you sticking your head in the sand that much? Like, are these divisions that are within the party, this interfighting is so so short-sighted and it's exactly what trump wants and i just can't understand how people can see that like i i like bernie i respect the way that he's changed the discussion i disagree with some of his policies but i cannot stand that attitude from i cannot understand i cannot support that attitude towards if it's not me it's everyone else is wrong and it's corrupt that's selfish and it's self-serving you know, you've got to be able to rec- like Trump. We all lived in fear of what happens if he lost the election and his supporters protested. Mm-hmm. Who cares? They lose the election. Let them protest. We'll arrest them for vandalism or whatever it is they do. The second we stop following the rules in this country and then we can say, if it's not me, it's corrupt. Then we lose all of our institutions and what's left of them. And honestly, they're not doing so well. That worries me. You've got to be willing to respect the rules of the game. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder how much social media and Twitter is contributing to this. Oh. I feel like that plays a huge role just in oh, absolutely. in uh, accelerating this polarization when 
on the ground, like in policy wise, there might not be as much polarization just because, I mean, you know, it's just the same old, the, the most extreme voices on Twitter get amplified. You get embedded within these digital echo chambers and, and I feel, yeah, I feel like that's largely responsible for a lot of it. So I was hoping you'd bring that up because even that podcast we were referencing that you did last week, the Young Democratic Socialist. Yeah. Like even I, I retreated to my own echo chamber. I listened to the first forty-five <laughs> minutes, and you were I was just like, texting me in outrage. On your yeah, because well, those are those are super, there's a bunch of separate reasons you can go into, but I recognize that like I love to say, oh yeah, everyone just retreats to their echo chamber, so why can't they be fair-minded and centrist like me? Right. And then I, I'm just as much part of the problem. And yeah. I have to say also, if you are those two demo- the co-presidents of the Young Democratic Socialists, and you're still listening to this, I salute you. You're you're better than me at breaking out of your echo chamber, and I respect that. Mm-hmm. It's something we all need to work on. And also, like, I got Twitter for the P campaign. I had to have a Twitter. Um, and it was comforting. I don't know if I follow you on Twitter. Uh, I'm going to create a new one. Um, okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to join that whole DeFi scene on Twitter. Um, yeah. But, you know, I... Uh, what, what I was going to say about this is you go and it's an echo chamber. It, Twitter learned that I was a Pete Buttigieg supporter and all I saw was pro Pete, pro Pete, pro Pete. And when mm-hmm. you see that, it's like, how can we not win the nomination? How can we not have the presidency guaranteed in November? And then you go on cold, hard reality and you realize that there are people that are in echo chambers just as vicious as yours. And, right. one of the, and the, eventually we're becoming devoid from reality. You know, it's different if you get your political news at your church where... There are Republicans, uh, I guess if you're going to a church, they're all Republicans. If you go to your mall and there are Republicans and there are Democrats and there's this, that, and the other thing, you know, you kind of have to moderate and get a tone for what people are actually thinking in general. But social media, it's all all you want all the time. And it's comforting. Like if you're upset if something bad happened that day to your candidate or your cause, you can look and see that there are 10,000 other people talking about how that's bullshit. And then that is insidious and embeds itself in your head. And just reconfirms that you were right. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's no, like, it must be corrupt if my guy doesn't get the nomination, you know. Like, Trump supporters did it. Right. And it's it's just, it's, it's, all I want is people to, like, I don't know, social media is terrible. Part of me thinks maybe we should have just, I think the world would be a better place without the internet, to be fundamentally honest. Yeah, and, like, for me, I try to be conscious of the fact that, um, you know, if you add people that just align with your ideological views and you're just seeing those all the time, then you can get trapped in this epistemic bubble. So I try to follow, consciously follow people that are from both sides of the ideological aisle, follow Republicans, I'll follow Democrats. But even if you do that, the algorithms still are at play, right? Where the the algorithms just detect your patterns of online behavior then just feed you back content that they know that you like. And that's fine if you're shopping for stuff on Amazon, but it's not good if you're trying to get an informed perspective about what's going on in the world. But I will also say, and Twitter is uniquely bad at this, but other social medias are better. Social media forms of social media are better because I saw a study, our generation is really, really good at detecting fake news. I think it was 75 to like 80% of all fake news shared on Facebook was from folks over 65 years old. And Really? Yeah. And I think that that's, I think just the role of online cultural literacy is huge because I could be the biggest Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar supporter in the world. And if I still see that Bernie got more votes, I'm going to respect him as the winner of that election because more people had different opinions. But however, if I see an article where it's like, turns out there were 10,000 votes for Pete that were stuffed in a box and never counted, you know, I'm going to be a little suspicious about that because that sounds like something designed to rile me up a little bit. You know, like we're going to investigate more. I just, what we need to do is 
separate between a fact and opinion, obviously, as we've been talking about for a while, but also we just need to become sane and civil and know what's fake and know what isn't fake and make sure that that doesn't enter into those echo spheres where it can be shot off to a million other people, that fake news. Yeah. I haven't seen that study, which indicates that we're better at detecting fake. I mean, it would make sense just because we're more tech savvy and stuff like that. I was talking to a professor of philosophy here named Michael Lynch, who did it, who informed me about a study where, um, I forget the exact study, but it illustrated that a shockingly low number of people who share news items on social media actually yep. read the articles. Yep. And the conclusion that they drew from that was that the primary function of sharing stuff, we usually tend to think that we're trying to inform others. Like, hey, hey everyone, here's something that you should know. But if we don't actually read the articles that we share, that undercuts the idea that that's the primary function of us sharing. And it speaks to the idea that what we're really doing is kind of virtue signaling or mm -hmm. we're not doing it for the sake of others, but we're sharing to say something about ourselves. Isn't we're sharing to say, hey, I'm on the right side of history. Look at me. I believe the right view. So it's more of a self-reflection or um, self-expression, I guess you could say. Well, isn't that the role of social media? I don't know why we should be shocked because it's all about presenting the image of yourself you want the world to see. Yeah, no, I guess. But I just, um, I don't know. That kind of, that seems to undercut the idea that we're better at detecting fake news if we're not reading the articles. Um, I don't really share anything, so... Did you have this this professor on the podcast? Because I feel like I listened to you talk. I about did, this. yeah, Michael yeah, Lynch. I listened to that one. Um, I, w I would like to know what age group was that that study was conducted under. Um, I'd be very curious to know. But I also would say, like, I've caught myself doing that. Like, this headline looks good for my angle. I'm gonna go post it, you know. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, wait, I should probably read the thing before I do that because you never know if there's gonna be something in the second paragraph that directly contradicts what you're saying or it's satirical or something like that. I don't know. Have you ever caught yourself doing this? What, sharing something that's not... Well, I just don't really share. Like, the only things I ever really post on social media are, like, from advertising for the podcast. Yeah. So I just don't really do it. But, um... Well, no corruption here, because you're not... Uh, you don't have ads. There's no uh, donations, right? <laughs> yeah, right. No agenda. <laughs> um, what do you think about... Another thing that kind of dovetails with this is there have been people pressing some of these big tech companies to take down fake news or news that is categorically false mm -hmm. and that can be proven as such. And then there's some resistance to that. I think some people, I might be misspeaking here, but I think some people think that maybe you shouldn't give big tech companies this power because who's to decide what news is fake and what's not. It's kind of analogous to the whole hate speech conversation online. Who is, mm -hmm. are the execs at Twitter? Do they have the power to decide what's hate speech and what's not? Some people accuse them of having a conservative bias and I kind of view it as mm -hmm. analogous to that hate speech conversation. Um, when we're talking about this fake news conversation. Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, did, um, I do. And did you see about that lawsuit today in California? No. So someone sued a social media company. I think it was Facebook. Uh, and Facebook's uh, over hate speech and stuff that was posted that Facebook didn't take down. And the court in California ruled that you do not have the, these tech companies do not have First Amendment freedom of speech. They cannot just say everything put up there isn't their fault. They are now, according to the, the court ruling, a news source, which means they are required to at least take down stuff that is willingly misleading or hateful or stuff like that. Now, that's one lower court ruling. I don't know if that'll get affirmed in higher courts. So this is the whole platform versus publisher debate? Like, are these big tech... Yeah, it's... 
tech companies like Facebook are not entitled to First Amendment protections for the stuff that is posted on their platform. They have to take action. They can't just hide behind the wall that it is free speech. But my opinion, to get back to your question, yep. is after World War II, Germany banned Nazi imagery, Nazi references in their otherwise free, con uh, free culture. And they seem to be doing fine, right? Like, I know that this is maybe anti-American or maybe I'm a young kid and maybe I'm oblivious. And I don't think it should be up to companies to decide what is and isn't banned. I, my preference would be that our government gets its act together and can actually agree to some of these things. Because I think that there's a lot of stuff that, you, regardless of which political party you support, we can all acknowledge is bad. Um, revenge porn, for instance, or uh, hate speech, or Nazi imagery, stuff like this. We can all accept there isn't a constructive use for it in our national dialogue. And I think... If there's no constructive use for it, it should be able to be taken down. Now, what we shouldn't block our... I was going to say now, what we, now we're getting into the thorns because what we shouldn't block are political references and political beliefs, of which I presume, I guess, neo-Nazism is one. But, right. like, I think that there becomes a line where we're kind of killing ourselves over doing nothing. You know what I mean? Like, can you really tell me that the alternative would be worse than what we have right now? Right. But, I mean, it d d doesn't it depend on how you conceptualize some of these social media websites? Like, if you view Twitter as akin to the digital public square, I'm allowed to go into the public square. I, I know, like, legally it might be different right now, but I'm allowed to go into the public square and shout profanities. There's nothing... I mean, yes, there are certain restrictions on speech. I'm not allowed to yell fire in a crowded theater and all that. But if that is what Twitter is, then... I'm much more hesitant towards banning that kind of thing. I mean, in general, I'm just a very pro-free speech type of person. Yeah. I believe that, you know, the correct answer to bad speech is more speech, not suppressing that speech. Yeah. So, so let's change the parameters then. If you go to the public square of your town and you are standing up on your box and you're chanting whatever you're chanting, you have the right to do that. Right. But also people are going to see you, Cody Turner, someone they know in their community. They're yeah. going to remember that and there are going to be consequences down the line. So maybe the solution to this whole problem is get rid of online anonymity. If you're going to post Nazi imagery, do it under your own name. Don't be a coward and hide behind a pseudonym. Because in the real world, you can say whatever you want. But also there are repercussions and societal norms that reinforce what you can and can't say. That's why people don't say the shit they say online and on the street. Yeah, maybe Twitter should get rid of fake handles. You have to put in your real first and last name. I bet all of this hate hate speech stuff goes away when people actually have to attach their name to what they're professing to believe in. Yeah, it definitely would reduce the online profanity, and it, it would uh, reduce the kind of road rage phenomenon that is social media, where yeah. you don't have to engage with the fellow humanity of a person because mm -hmm. you might be anonymous and they're never going to find out. So you're more inclined to say things that you wouldn't otherwise say. Are you allowed to be anonymous? Like I could. To like just put on a mask, returning to the public square analogy, I could just put on a mask and go to the public square and shout profanities and people still wouldn't know who I am. I mean, that'd be kind of a silly thing to do, but... I think that would kind of undermine the whole effectiveness because then you're very publicly saying, I'm ashamed of what I'm saying, but I still want to say it, you know? Well, one one uh, case study here might be like the Antifa people. Mm -hmm. Like they, there's this, you know, the uh, far left Antifa group, they all wear masks when they go protest in public mm -hmm. and... I've heard some people arguing that they shouldn't be allowed to do so because sometimes they'll commit crimes and there have been instances where they can't convict anyone because they were anonymous. I think, I forget. That's very interesting. The I details are escaping that. me, but I think they're like, is it banned to wear, if you remember the Ku Klux Klan, is it, are you not allowed to wear that in public? 
I think maybe there's like a law against that or something. I I'd don't know. I'd be very curious to know how that. Not to equate the Klu- the Ku Klux Klan with Antifa. I'm not saying they're morally analogous or anything like that. But yeah. No, that's interesting because then I wonder how you could outlaw the KKK stuff and not like Nazi stuff, for instance. Right. You know what I mean? That I would I would like to know if that's a law or not. But I think that there's something to be said for that. If you're going to stand up for what you believe in, you should have to attach your name to it. Maybe if you're in a pol- if you're in an organized political demonstration, you got the police permit and everything. Maybe you shouldn't be allowed to wear a mask. In fact, I don't think you are. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think. I wish you we had are. a Jamie here. Yo, Jamie, pull that up. Yeah. <laughs> well, dude, keep at it. Eventually, you'll have a samurai sword or whatever <laughs> it is he has in here. Another thing is, uh, what do you think about deep fakes? That's another thing where you. Oh, I'm you... worried about those. But I think. Yeah. Everyone's worried about them on the Democratic side. I, saw, I read an article recently. That said, we could deep fake Trump and everyone would believe it. We could, oh, yeah. We could have him saying. Just the most insane. Yeah, like I'm not going to say it here. Bad shit thing that you can think of. And yeah. And so part of me thinks like we're, all, we're only seeing the beginning of it now. And I'm very afraid about where that goes. And we need to come up with technology now yeah. that, uh, that can detect fakes. But I also think we need to make it very clear to YouTube, to online platforms, to Facebook. If there's a modified video up there right now and it's intentionally giving a misleading impression, you need to take that down immediately. Right, right. Like, I think that that's something left and right, Democrats and Republicans could agree upon. But yeah. currently there was there are doctored videos. I think there was one of, like, Pelosi appearing, like, drunk or something. I remember and that, like, yeah, yeah. And Facebook didn't take it down. Yeah. That's not free speech. That's lying. Well, can we take another, because I feel like there is a moral gray area here that might be fun to explore. So another uh, case study of this happened recently with Mike Bloomberg. So after the, the, one of the most recent debates. Oh, I heard about yeah, this. Yeah, Mike Bloomberg came out with a, his team or whatever, posted a Twitter video where during the debate, Mike Bloomberg said, I think I'm the only one who started a business here, right? And then everyone was silent because no one else had started a business on the stage. And they did, they, they, they edited the video in such a way where they added the sound of crickets to it and they really kind of slowed things down and so people that's not a deep fake that's no that's not a deep fake modded, but yeah. yeah that's that's just an instance of uh modifying a video in a way that might be misleading or false and so many people got outraged by this saying like this is going to mislead people people who didn't see the debate are going to think that it actually happened this way mm-hmm. but for, i had a different reaction actually my reaction i immediately recognized it as parody right editing a video for kind of like in, in such a way where it's obviously edited and false and an instance of parody. This isn't him trying to manipulate a video to deceive people. So I guess the question would be, is there kind of a moral gray area here where when do we say something is like intentionally deceptive and misleading, we need to take it down versus obviously that's edited or that's parody and how can you not see that? Does that make so sense? I haven't seen the Bloomberg video, but if it is true, what I was under the impression it was was that it seemed like seamless, like he asked that and no one had an answer. But if you're saying there were crickets in there and it was pretty clear that it wasn't the truth, yeah. that, that does change the things a little bit. Because I read something interesting. I was listening to a podcast recently and it was arguing the difference between a liar and a bullshitter. Oh, I love this distinction. Yeah. Yeah. And this the comes li- from the philosopher Harry Frankfurt, by yes, the way. Yes, that's what we were talking about. And the liar is someone that knows who he's talking to, what they believe in, is intentionally saying something disingenuous that they're going to think is true. A bullshitter is someone that goes out there and says something that you know isn't real. Like I could tell you, hey, the sky is red and you're going to know I'm bullshitting you. Whereas I could be like, hey, Cody, I saw someone steal your laptop when we were up getting coffee a minute ago and you're going to run down here because you think that some that actually happened. And 
I think that that is akin to where we should take the distinctions in this case. If it's obvious that something is meant to be fake, then it should be taken down. But if it's parody, I don't know. Like people, there may not be much faith in the in the average American to determine what is and isn't true these days. We do need to draw the line somewhere. Um, like Jojo Rabbit, have you heard of that movie? Uh, yeah, I've seen it advertised. It's like the Hitler. Yeah, it's like satirical. Right, right. So that can get published, but like in Germany that could get published, I think. But in like, you can't walk around. Actually, yeah, you can't like do serious stuff out there because people know that one's serious and one isn't. There are other ways that other cultures have dealt with this, like uh, Cambodia, like how they deal with the Khmer Rouge and like that whole stain on on their history. It's very interesting what is and what isn't allowed. Um... For instance, the the current prime minister, Hun Sen, was a member of the Khmer Rouge, which was obviously the terrible, Pol Pot's terrible regime that had the killing fields and murdered tons of people. He was in the Khmer Rouge, but you can't talk about that. But you can talk about the fact that it led to the government it has today and things like that. It's it's really bizarre. Like Different cultures draw different defining lines, but they managed to do it. And I think we're confusing our inability because of how fractured our country is to solve this problem versus what we could actually do if we weren't being ripped apart in a million different ways. So is your suggest with the liar bullshitting distinction, things that are obvious lies should be barred or should, should, should be excluded, but bullshitters should not be? I think if something's intentionally false, there's no need to remove it. Like it's obvious, like intentionally, like obviously like, like that, if there were crickets, like everyone's waiting around, there are no crickets in the debate hall. Like that's obviously not what actually happened. Mm-hmm. I'm more okay with that than if he'd like lightly edited the video to have everyone there be shocked. And like, that was it. You know what I mean? Where it seemed like that could have plausibly been what happened. Right, right. So I think that willfully misleading people in a way that is designed to misrepresent the truth should be prevented. I guess one of the problems is there still is some potential ambiguity there. Like with the Nancy Pelosi video, I could see, I saw, I saw that video and I, I could see someone arguing, well, like, obviously this is slowed down to half speed. Like if you do that half speed when listening to podcasts, everyone sounds yeah. drunk. So if you're used to that, you could say, well, yeah, this is obviously slowed down. But then if you're not, you could say, well, is she drunk? What's going on? Is she like, is her, are, are her cognitive abilities yeah. declining? What's going on? So I guess there's always going to be this kind of ambiguity that we're going to have to wrestle with here. Well, it's the same ambiguity as what we went, as what you mentioned earlier. Can you, should you be able to yell fire in a theater with, you know, free speech in a country that values free speech? And we've managed to find a distinction there. We just got to do the same thing online. Yeah. I do, I do think like circling back to the deep fake thing. Um, I've wondered whether there might be a positive silver lining to it where if these deep bit fakes become ubiquitous online, it'll just make us more inherently reflective and, and less trusting of videos when we see them. Kind of like the same way that mm-hmm. Photoshop um, arguably had this effect where, you know, if you see someone's Instagram now, you're like, all right, well, that's not, even if they say no filter, like they probably, there's probably a filter. Yeah. Like you just don't believe it. Yeah. You know that's not real. Yeah. Are we going to have the same... Um, distrusting attitude towards videos, a distrusting attitude which might be epistemically productive, whereas nowadays we just kind of automatically believe any video that we see. I, I don't know. I think, what's too really, I think what's really scary about our political moment right now is that people are already choosing to believe things that have been imp- to, proven to be empirically false. For instance, a lot of the modern Republican Party is choosing to believe that climate change isn't happening when it is. And so I'm isn't worried- that just a hoax by the Chinese? <laughs> All right, Cody. Um, <laughs> That's what Daddy Trump uh, the, said. The correct answer is yes, but uh, 
you know, those dumb, dumb, you know, uh, but, you know, all I'm saying is, like, I think it's really likely that if we were to, given our lack of discourse now between two functioning political halves, right. there's half the country, if you're a Democrat and you see a video of Trump saying, you know, screw minorities or something, mm-hmm. um, you're going to believe that even if he denies it. And then the Republicans are going to don't are going to believe his denials, you know, like maybe it'd be different if we had like Obama as president, someone that we know what they're going to say and what they aren't going to say. But right now in this moment, Trump literally said I could walk down Main Street and shoot someone. And right. like that's normal. So I guess that's. I don't know. I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um but I, I don't know if I'm that optimistic. I honestly think people would believe whatever's convenient to them because they're already getting their news from where it's convenient to them. Yeah, and I definitely think uh, the attention economy is just... It, what's that one quote? Kind of dovetails with the Lenin quote you said. The, a lie travels halfway across the world before the truth, before can, the truth can tie his shoes or whatever. And it, it is. You know, all these... Or something's tweeted often enough, yeah. it becomes the truth, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, because people, they just don't have, they're so, they're bombarded with so much digital content from all angles at all times of the day. They just see something and they just believe it and they don't look into it further, even if it's debunked an hour later. Again, I think that this is part of the reason why we should get consider getting rid of online anonymity. Because yeah. then if you are known as someone that routinely posts, by your friends as someone that posts stuff that just is false or misleading, we don't need to legislate what you can and can't post. We're just not going to trust you. You know what I mean? I think that all of these problems can completely be removed if we just make people be honest with who they are. Maybe that's because we're relying on public shaming, but guess what? We do that in society too. You know what I mean? Like walking around, if someone is walking down the street pushing old woman down to the curb, we're going to say to that person, what the hell's wrong with you? You know? Yeah. Like it's public shaming because we've decided that that's not acceptable. And the only way we do that online is if we make people be honest with who they are. Um, and then the problem of deep fakes goes away too. And I also think that there should be a little flag for videos or things like this country was produced, this video was produced in Russia or something. So it's like, oh, this was uploaded in Russia. It's probably bullshit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just, again, I, I, I'm looking at all these problems and there are all these fine lines you need to draw. And it seems like you can get rid of all of them with people having to post things under their real name. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't thought about this that much. And I'm definitely going to think about it more. I'm, I'm trying to search for an argument in favor of online anonymity right now. And I'm sure there are arguments there out there are that some. exist. So like one is like, one is like if you're a kid in middle school and you're really badly bullied, so you transfer to another school, you want to get a different f- Facebook or a different Instagram account where the people that you're becoming friends with now don't see all the stuff that people are saying about you beforehand. So like there are positives, but I just don't think, I think if you look around at how distrustful and hateful the internet is on Reddit or 4chan or 8chan or whatever, the negatives just so outweigh the positives that at a certain point we've got to just make a judgment call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I want to uh, kind of return to the politics of this. Why are you a democratic centrist? Or we've kind of talked about a lot of the politics surrounding this and the uh, 2020 mm-hmm. election coming up, but just like, I guess from a policy standpoint, why do you consider yourself a centrist as opposed to a progressive? And we can get into particular policies, mm-hmm. we can talk about healthcare, whatever you want, but... Um, the overarching so there was a study that I read back when I was still doing. You know, my being progressive is trendy. It's the hot thing to do. Dude, I'm not. There's nothing about me that's trendy. Um, <laughs> being a centrist is not trendy. Everyone's doing it. Come on, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> there was a study that I read when I was working on my thesis at William and Mary, and it was basically observing whether nominating an extremist candidate actually helps win elections. 
for that side mm-hmm. or the opposite. And what it found was, on average, no. Nom- if you're the if if you're the Democrats and you nominate an extremist candidate in a congressional election, it does not increase your voter turnout, but the fear drastically increases the opponent's turnout. So. And that's what Bernie is kind of banking on, right? I'm, this no, new... no, he's banking on the opposite. He's banking that, oh, I see what you're talking no, yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, he's banking on uh, drawing voters into the electorate that pre- previously hadn't voted. Yeah. And that's not, not been happening, um, but also, like, so far this primary. But I would also say, if we wanted a country full of Democrat or a government full of democratic socialists, there'd be more than one or two, I guess, if you count AOC, who was elected from, like, the most democratic of districts. I think that a lot of people fundamentally are in the middle and right now we've got as you said the entertainment economy or whatever you want to call it for the online attention only the loudest most screamy most ridiculous voices make the headlines because there's nothing sexy about reporting a reasonable normal thing you know what i mean it's practical centrism yeah like you know what i mean that's not going to get anyone any votes and if we're dealing with elections and no one has attention span beyond for taglines then yeah hey, I'm going to vote for whoever makes an impression. And it's not going to be any of the centrists. It's going to be the people that are talking about how everything sucks and everything's terrible and we should burn it all down to the ground because that's what you're going to remember. You're not going to remember Amy Klobuchar's list of resume accomplishments. Cool, she passed a farm bill in 2018. Like, objectively, that's important in the past, but, like, that's not sexy. So I guess that's what I kind of... Like, I'm a centrist, and I think most people are fundamentally center-left. If you look at a lot of polls in this country, most people... I know that this is a meme... Um, identify as socially liberal, fiscally conservative, mm-hmm. but you would never think that. You'd think you're either fiscally conservative, socially conservative, or the other way around. I think there's a lot of middle room in the middle. And I will also say, we don't need to talk about this right now, but I would like to get to election law uh, later on because there's a very yeah. easy way to change the incentives in our electoral system. Well, one question I have when you're talking is, it seems like a lot of people conflate centrism with like the with the corporate establishment, and and. I don't know, maybe they are conflated in reality, but, you know, people talk about how we live in this age of populist politics and, you Mm -hmm. know, like Bernie's populist left, Trump's populist right. And a lot of that seems right. But why can't the, why is, I guess my question would be, why isn't there a centrist populist candidate? Why is it that people, it seems like people are, what they're really against is the establishment, the corporate establishment, the powers that be. Couldn't there be a centrist populist candidate that's also anti-establishment? So I think the phenomenons that made Trump president are the exact same phenomenons leading to Bernie's presidency. It's very interesting. I think we are in a media, not a media so much, but, you know, let's take inequality. Inequality is really bad. And I think when people talk about inequality, what they're really talking about are A, the poverty level, and B, the chances at advancement. We would not be having populism on either side of the spectrum if people perceived the economy to be working for them, if they perceived the government to be working for them. You know, there's a reason that Bernie Sanders is popular now and not in the 1990s when the economy was booming. You know what I mean? In terms of his ideas and the appeal they have to our generation. If we felt that... Isn't the economy booming now? Again, yes, if you look at the top line. But the whole democratic argument for everyone is that the middle class isn't. All the growth is going to the top, and it has been for so long. And this is one area in which I am a increasingly becoming more and more leftist is it's just the accumulation of wealth at the top is insane and there's so many people our age you know the right loves to freak out about people our age not getting married or having kids or you know moving back in with their parents it's like well yeah because the environment you created the economy you created doesn't work for us why should we own any lip service to a capitalist system if it's not working for a generation i think capitalism is the best economic system 
we've ever devised, but that's only when it's adequately controlled and its worst impulses are tamed. This is not boring, or this is not exciting, I understand. No, I, I would agree with but, that, despite my flirtations with yeah. socialism. So, um, like, what yeah. I want to tell my, what I always tell my dad when we get to this point in the argument, because he's talking about how I'm so far left and I'm saying I'm actually pretty centrist, is I'm, me, as a center-left person, I'm the type of person that's fighting to save capitalism from itself. You think I'm voting for increased, you know, the, you being him. Right. Um, my dad calls me being such a leftist and wanting to increase, for instance, Medicare for all who wants it and things like that. Yeah. All of these policy proposals. Well, hey, if you keep making your economy cut impossible for more and more people to buy into, because more and more of the profits going to the top, like our generation can't get married, we can't buy a house, we're moving back in with our parents. You're just going to increase the backlash and the lack of faith people have in that economic system. Capitalism is great. The whole role of the government is to tame it and redistribute it. And ever since the Reaganite revolution, the government has failed at this task. We don't regulate anymore, like at all. And we don't redistribute at all. You know what I mean? I mean, we do a little bit, but like just look at Trump's tax cuts. That's a massive wealth accumulation at the top. So I think there's anger at that and that has been seen as the establishment because things were good for a while but then you know since reagan until i'd say after obama everyone was shocked at the outrage but i think that it's the same fundamental anger on both sides it's the same cause it's the lack of opportunity to advance and when that happens people look for an alternative system whether it's what trump's offering or what bernie's offering right and they don't realize that the alternative could be a lot worse yeah. and they've neglected the exactly. positives that capitalism has yeah. brought us i think Yes, absolutely. I mean, there was wealth inequality was very, very low from the 1940s to the 1970s until Reagan got in because we had much higher income taxes for starters. We had much higher redistributive program or much more money was being re redistributed. Capitalism worked, but we tamed it. We stopped court. We stopped uh, corporate conglomerations. We had much less lobbying than we do now. And we redistributed a lot more and there was opportunity. So when the system I'm just more of the school that what we've got fundamentally is good. There's a lot we need to change. There's a lot we need to reform. Yeah. We need to get money out of politics. We never return to that adequately. We need to do all of these things. We need to make sure that people feel like there's a future for them. But that's more easily done from the middle. The great thing about supporting someone like Trump or a candidate like Bernie is the grass is always greener on the other side. We haven't tried it, so it can be everything to everyone. It can be perfect and unblemished. You can just paint this picture of utopia. Yeah, yeah exactly. There's no record that you can run against it. That's why, as I said earlier, that's why Barack Obama could become president in 2008 was because he didn't have much of a record. He could paint himself as progressive as he needed to be or as centrist as he needed to be to hold this fractious democratic alliance together. But then Hillary Clinton comes along and you know who she is. It's easy to take sides against her. Capitalism comes along. We know what it is doing for us right now. And people conflate the evils of capitalism, which it is bad and dangerous when it's unconstrained with capitalism at all, but it doesn't need to be this way. It hasn't been this way. It just has been since Reagan came along and changed the name, the field of what was acceptable in terms of economic thought in the country for so long. And it's dangerous. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think I share that perspective. No, as a person not really knowing that much about this, yeah, I think that's what I think, that capitalism, I mean, as you might have heard in my last podcast, I agree with a lot of the Marxist critiques of capitalism, but it seems like at least the best worst system that we have and um, where it doesn't work, where it leads to, leads to negative externalities like in the realm of climate change, maybe there should be more government regulation oh, yeah. there. And when it comes to certain issues like healthcare, I do at a moral level fundamentally believe that healthcare should be a human right. So maybe we should be taking more, more and again, don't 
necessarily listen to anything I'm saying. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but um, maybe we should be taking that out of the free market and putting it in the hands of the government. So I, I would say that most democracies around the world have recognized climate change for the danger it is, and they've gone to much more aggressive measures than we have to try and claim it. The exceptions, Brazil's an exception, Russia's not a democracy, China's not a democracy, India is, but they've got their own problems. Our issue isn't so much whether or not people believe in climate change and want to do something about it. The question is the money that is in politics right now prevented the Republican Party. Let's get back there. How do we get money out of politics? So this is something, again, that unites all Democrats and is not going to happen if we all don't vote for the Democratic nominee, whether it's who we want or who it isn't. But we need to get rid of Citizens United. We need to overturn that because that are you familiar with dark money and super PACs and things like that? Uh, vaguely. What, so, can you explain Citizens United? Though? Yeah. So the Supreme Court ruled that corporations can be they're basically a person, except they're not, which means that the money that a corporation can donate is unlimited to a political cause. You cannot. So there's a tw- there's a two thousand eight hundred dollar <laughs> limit that you can donate to any candidate. Right. Right. Or what you can do is create what's called a super PAC, which is say your your parents like Trump, right? Like yes. They Donald Trump for Connecticut super PAC, and it's not technically a so it's not talking to Trump's campaign, it's not communicating with his campaign. But you, as the evil billionaire you are from this podcast, can shovel ten billion dollars into it, and it can p- pump out Trump propaganda nonstop as long as you're not actually getting your direct marching orders from the campaign. That's legal. That's unlimited campaign contributions, essentially. And the Supreme Court ruled that that is political free speech. Um, and this allows for corporations, Shell or anyone, any the Mercer Network, the Koch brothers, before Trump became president because they've since had a divorce, to put as much money into the political sphere as they want, to run as many ads as they want. And since they're not the candidate, they can be misleading. Just, yeah, like yeah. third party, exactly. this is what we believe. But since the Supreme Court ruled that that is constitutional, corporations have the rights to give money to, corp- to political candidates. That's another that's another wrinkle I should get back to. Super PACs only need to report the individuals that give it money, not corporate entities, I believe. So there's no there's not much of a point if you're a billionaire because you I mean you can have your name listed, but you know it's the corporations that want to have money. Corporations can't give money to candidates, I believe. They can give money to super PACs. So and I would which wanna, could be effectively the same that. thing in terms of yeah. the influence that they're having because for that candidate. You're not supposed to communicate with the campaign, but it's pretty easy to know that if you want to run a super PAC supporting Trump, you want to attack Hillary Clinton, for instance, in 2016. Right. You know what I mean? Um, it's easy to get marching orders and messaging. The, the, the letter. It's just another example of how our government paralysis means we need to rely on the courts to make laws and the courts have a very literal way of interpreting things that are on the laws so we've got we've got these laws that are on the books and they keep getting whittled down and whittled down and whittled down so it's like it's just really scary and this is just an example of that where it's like corporations aren't people but according to a legalese very pretense definition they can have the same rights as one any any reasonable group of human beings like you and i can look at each other and be like a corporation is not a person but we're the elected officials. We're the legislature. We need to pass something. And again, we're so gridlocked because now we've all got super PACs funding our re-election. And the second we divert from the party line, those donors can give unlimited monies to our opponent to beat us in a primary. And then we're out of power. So everything right now is pushing just this ever-increasing paralysis. And 
lack of actually solving any of these problems. And so that would be the first step, getting rid of that. Yes. Or that's one step, getting that's rid of that step. law, which treats corporations as people. Yes. I also think another example that we should do is do a lifetime ban for all um, people on Capitol Hill to become lobbyists. I think we should also have matching private public funding for campaigns. I actually think all federal elections should be funded by the federal government. I think we should take funding out of it completely. So when you get your Republican nominee, and there are problems with this too, when you get your Republican nominee and your Democratic nominee, it shouldn't matter how much money you can raise in a presidential election. It should be like, hey, you get $500 million to run the Republican nomination for the Republican race. You get 500 for the Democratic race. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And if you don't spend it all, by the end of the race, we get it back. So, And then we could do something similar. The question is, how does this work in primaries? In which case, you could have the same problem, but right, I'm just spitballing right now. And then you could do the same thing. Like, hey, GOP, you get $20 million a senator for their re-election campaigns, and their Democratic opponent's going to get $20 million too then you just take the money out of at least the Democrat versus Republican election. Would um, that would we have to raise taxes or something in order for the government to be able to pay for that? Or how would that dude, work? Dude, there are so many ways that we can increase revenue without raising taxes. And there's so many programs we can cut. Do you know that the U.S. government gets more, the U.S. Army gets more tanks every single year than it wants? America. America, yeah. It, it's asked <laughs> us to stop sending them tanks. And, <laughs> Please, and, and, and Congress still keeps doing it. Yeah, like we, what are, tanks are, they very much have their purposes. Chiz, if you're listening, I respect you and I love you. Um, but, you know, tanks are different from what the warfare is going to look like in the future with regards to Raytheon missiles, to drones, to a lot of the stuff. That cyber Andrew warfare. About cyber warfare, exactly. Like if you've got three, you know, pimply bloggers in a basement, a tank's not going to help unless you literally run it through their house. Right. Um, so there are a number of ways that we can both raise revenue, cut expenditures. And I'm. this is one thing where I'm with Bernie Sanders 100%. We're spending way too much on the military. We need to be investing in better education uh, here at home. We need to be investing in better health care. But we also need to be investing in our election law. This was the other change I wanted to make when we were talking about elections. Yeah, yeah, the election law. Stuff. This is a really big one um, because election law right now is something called first past the post. It doesn't matter if you get a majority in an election. As long as you get more than your opponent, you win. That's dangerous, and that's how we've always done elections, and it's not constitutional. I mean, it's it's constitutional in terms of passes, but it's not in the Constitution. What other countries do, like Paris, is they have elections where you need to get at least 50%. So what happens then is if you have like four people running for president and one gets 30%, one gets 20%, one gets 10, one gets a 15 or whatever, like in France, in the last election, Emmanuel Macron was less popular than Marie Le Pen, who was this far-right figure in the first round. But after the lower two candidates dropped off, all those people are like, Emmanuel Macron's more sane than Marine Le Pen, and he won by a huge percentage in the second round. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is make it such that now you need to get at least 50% of the vote in your district to win. And then this go, goes and coincides with gerrymandering. But you need to get 50% to win your seat, which means that you're not just rushing to play up the angry extreme wings of your party. You at least presumably need to get some of the votes from the moderates and the centrists, which means you're going to soften your, uh, which means you're going to soften your rhetoric and your dialogue. Of course, this also means that we need to have not gerrymandered districts where it's 100% Republican. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, it all it all comes together. H.R. 1, which is a bill the House passed, goes a long way towards doing a lot of this. And part of the reason why I'm so excited to be involved in po- politics in New Hampshire, especially in this election, is everyone should be, by the way. You should get involved. Because we are going to be, the census comes up here and the election around, 
And that's how we determine our congressional districts. And if there is a Republican governor or your government state, your state government's run by Republicans, they're going to draw districts that are advantageous to the Republican Party and most likely vice versa, too. What we need are districts that are 50 percent Democrat, 50 percent. Oh, wait, can I stop you for a sec? Because yeah. I don't know. So you're saying that the drawing of the districts is determined by the census? Uh, yes, that's where they decide who's living where. And then what happens is each and I mean, a lot, a lot of states do different, differently. Some have independent uh, commissions that are supposed to come up with uh, independent commissions that are supposed to come up with rep- districts that are roughly 50-50. But basically right now, it's one of Pete's favorite taglines is we've got politicians choosing their voters rather than voters choosing their politicians. Because they'll draw the districts yeah. in a way that benefits them. To guarantee their reelection. Right. But when that happens, and say you're in a district that's 97% Republican, or I don't know, 75% Republican, you're not worried about beating the Democratic challenger. You're just worried about winning about beating your Republican challenger in the primary. And the way you do that, if you're in a district that's that Republican, is you lean into the extremism. You go as far right as you can so that the other guy can't say you fail his purity test, and then you win. And then that's how you get such a polarized Congress. Gerrymandering has become worse than ever. Now there are computer models that can do it more effectively than ever. It was actually, there was a, a Republican operative who died last year. And when he died, he was known as like the uh, the god of Republican strategy and this type of thing. Mm. When he died, he had a bunch of very incriminating stuff in his hard drive saying, we're going to say it's not racial because basically it's a whole other reason. He died and his daughter, who's no friend of the Republican Party, found it and took it to a lawyer and was saying, see, they are doing this to win elections. It's not about free speech or anything else. And that completely blew the legal cover on gerrymandering for a little while. Not that it mattered, but... All I'm saying is we need to have commissions that are at least somewhat representative of the population of a state. If a state is 70% Republican, it should have conservative senators. But in Ohio, which is really close to 50-50, it's got a state government that's 70% Republican. Yeah, no, that seems that seems insanely corrupt to me. Yeah, it is. Uh, so how do we... It seems almost like a feedback loop. Like we want... In order to change these laws, we need people that are motivated to change these laws, but the people in power are not motivated to change these laws because they're beholden to some of these corporate interests or whatever, or it's, it's not within their benefit to change these laws because the gerrymandering enables them to stay in power. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess, and I don't, you know, I don't know what the answer to this would be, but how do we break out of this feedback loop? There's almost, se- all this seems like an argument for political populism in a way. We need people that are not beholden to any interests who are in it for the right reasons to, to come in and change the structure to break out of the feedback loop. I think that's true. Um, I mean, then again, they turned around and nominated Trump, but I think Trump was a reaction to, Trump was a reaction to how fed up people were with all of this. And then they nominated someone who's more corrupt. But remember he said, I alone can fix it. You know, he was talking about fixing these problems. Drain the swamp. Drain the swamp. And Bernie's doing the same thing, I think on the, on the, on the Democratic side. And another reason why I'm a centrist is because I don't think you can win from the extremes. I don't think you can actually pass policy or deal with the problems you're saying you're going to solve. I don't think Bernie will be able to pass Medicare for all if he gets elected or do a lot of the things he wants to, whereas at least you might get some of those things with one of the centrists. Can we talk about that, the health care thing? Because that, that that's another uh, argument that the Young Democratic Socialists of America tried to convince me of. They gave their spiel as to—I don't, I don't forget the, all the details of it, but they gave their spiel as to why the public option doesn't work— and why Medicare for all is the way to go. Why do you think the public option, because that's Pete's basic yeah. stance, right? Like, yeah. yes, we should have Medicare for all. We should have in the form of a public That's option. That's what Obama wanted but couldn't pass. Right, but we shouldn't 
destroy the private healthcare industry. Why is that better than Medicare for all, in your opinion? Um, well, at risk of sounding like the can't, uh, risk of sounding like Pete, uh, I like the healthcare plan that my dad has, and frankly, uh, most countries around the world don't have Medicare for all. They have a Medicare for all who want it type system. In Germany, because that's can, another one of Bernie's talking points. He'll say that, look, we just need to catch up with the rest of the developed world. Like, get over your American is, exceptionalism here and realize misleading. that there are problems that our country has. Germany give, guarantees health care for everyone. Right. And if you want to, you can have your own plan. Like, you can, like, that's what he's saying is it's not the whole developed world. The whole developed world guarantees health care, but they don't guarantee a one size fits all plan. Pete's argument against that is there are a lot of people that like their health care. They're in a union or they're doing other things. They like what they have. They don't want to give that up. And a great way to make sure everyone wants to support a health care reform is saying, if you like what you have, great, you can keep that. Otherwise, please support us in giving this to everyone else. All Democrats want people to have health care. Most Republicans want health care, too. But a lot of them aren't going to give up their plans. It's like the whole argument is this is a great way to make sure that a lot of people that otherwise would support expanding Medicare will oppose it. Um, and basically, who's going to be... And this is the other thing. Is Pete thinks it's a... We're going to get to Medicare for All with Medicare for All who want it. Because if the government's able to provide a plan that's better than the options that are from corporation or better on the insurance market, people well, are going to naturally choose the public plan. Right. And either the insurance companies up their game, lower their prices... In which case, great, better service for everyone. People are on the, med on the public plan if they want to be or on a private plan if they want to be. Or they don't, and then we get to Medicare for all anyway. But it's all about passing it. You're not going to pass something when many, many people in this country, including many, many Democrats, like what they have already. I think it's important to say that even among Democrats, support for Medicare for all isn't above 50%. Like this isn't, which means if you're going to say Republican Democrats are half the country, it's under 25%. Tell mm -hmm. me how that passes. I don't see it. Everyone wants to expand healthcare. Everyone knows the healthcare system is nuts in this country and doesn't work. Bernie's right on that point. It's another example of me agreeing with him diagnosing the problem and disagreeing with his solution. Mm. Right. So just as a matter of political pragmatics, if we actually want to get something done, this is the way that we should go. Yeah. Plus, the other thing is the government very rarely gets things right the exact first time they try it. Like, we have to tinker with it. We have to make it better. Like, the initial rollouts of... Uh, Medicare, I believe, is the federal. Yeah, federal, didn't the website go uh, down historically? Or oh, whatever? that's Obamacare. Obamacare. But I'm just saying, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. with anything this big, it's going to take time to troubleshoot and make it perfect. And maybe we shouldn't make sure that there are people that have no health insurance because we've gotten rid of their private plans while we're trying to figure out how to make this work on our end. You know, let's open it and then let's make it better. Let's improve it. Um, also, there's no way in hell that the health insurance industry would want Medicare for all who want it. Like, that's just also disingenuous. And if Pete's so beholden to them, why did he sue the pharmaceutical companies for their role in the opioid crisis in South Bend? It's another... This is just one of the things that really bothers me about some aspects of Bernie Sanders' campaign is that it's willingly misleading. And I understand that that's politics, but also, like, we can do better. So you said earlier that you think that Bernie has a shot at beating Trump. Is that... Just because you think Trump is so unappealing to so many Americans? Because a lot of what you're saying now kind of undercuts that in the sense that Bernie has all these radical policies that a lot of Americans just aren't on board with, like Medicare for all. But he's got one important qualifying factor. He's not Trump. Exactly. Um, he's not Trump. There's such a hatred of Trump. And the reason why I'd vote for Bernie over Trump is not because I like Bernie. I think he's better barely. 
but because I don't want to see more judicial picks. I don't want to see the judiciary roll over to Trump. I don't want to see these Republican policies. I don't want to see more tax breaks. And frankly, I want the Republican Party to be demolished in its current iteration. I think what it is now is horrifying. It's a cult of personality. I think the Democrats can do better, but I also just want anyone that can beat up, beat up Trump. I want anyone that can stop taking orders from Russia because a big point for Bernie is that he's not beholden to Russia, unlike Do you Trump. think Trump's beholden to Russia, though? I, I think I don't really buy that as much. There's got to be something, though. Why else would he be doing the things he's doing? What does he stand to gain? What is he doing specifically that is in the benefit of Russia? Undermining NATO. Undermining Abandoning NATO? Ukraine, holding up their military aid. Like, why Why would he be doing a lot of these things unless he thought that there, unless there was some reason for him to do it? Believing Putin over his own intelligence. I think a large I just part don't of buy it's it, also, dude. I don't buy that. Okay. I, don't, I don't see that. Well, he was trying to open Trump Tower for what it's worth but um, in Moscow. But I would also say... What really scares me about it, I think, honestly, a large part of it for Trump is maybe Russia doesn't have anything on him, but they like him because he's ineffectual and keeps our country divided. And he likes them because his own insurance agencies are saying, Russia's trying to help you. And he's saying, screw that. I won the election on my own. Like, you know what I mean? And maybe even if it's true, I think Republican senators know that Russia favors them over the Democrats right now. And so they're okay with Russian influence in politics, even if they profess not to be. Like Moscow Mitch, there's a reason that Cognomen was so effective at pissing off Mitch McConnell. Yeah, I don't. I, I think maybe I just have a hangover from the whole Mueller report and Russia nonsense that the mainstream media has propagated over the past couple of years. My basic that's a whole podcast in and of that's itself. That's a whole podcast right in and of itself. But I mean, my basic perspective is that the Democrats misdiagnosed in a lot of ways why Trump was elected there there I think I said this in the That's last true. I said I think I said this in the last podcast I know I did actually they thought that oh there's more white supremacists than we thought and Russia had a huge influence and I know um Russia did have an influence there's yeah. all these great work that's been done by Rene DeResta on the influence that Russia had on the last political election but um so many of these things were overdetermined as well like there's so many fat you know people voted for Trump just because they hated Hillary or they thought Trump was going to be good for the economy. No one and, thought he was going to win anyway. Yeah, no one thought he was going to win. They underestimated him. Maybe that led to lower voter turnout. But then just in the aftermath, they just seemed to double and triple down on this Russia stuff and how he is a puppet of Putin. And I just don't see it. Like it just, yes, I think Trump's a raging narcissist. and I think he's going to do whatever he thinks is in his own best self-interest. If his self-interest aligned with Russia, then... Yes, perhaps and he would coordinate does, with them. Because I think he knows that Russia likes him more than the Democrats. So it is his own self-interest. But um, it didn't show that he was colluding with Russia or anything like that, to my First knowledge. First of all, colluding isn't a legal term. Um, I'm sure that anyone listening to this knows that it's not like the law says, the president shall not collude with Russia. All impeachment says is that, uh, what is it? It's like actions, uh, like abandoning the responsibilities of the office or something. Colluding was... And this is something I give Trump a lot of credit for. He's really, really smart at moving the goalposts from a standard he knows he'll fail to one that he knows is impossible to prove so he can then point and say he's acquitted. Yeah, he got acquitted in the Senate, but also that was with no witnesses and no votes and everything else. So, like, he still got to say acquittal. Can I ask you a question on that? Yeah. Um, so the Republican talking point to that is, well, why didn't they call witnesses in the House? They could have called witnesses in the House, but they rushed the trial forward to the Senate, and now they're asking for witnesses in the Senate so 
the reason that the House didn't push for those witnesses is they subpoenaed a lot of people. A lot of people said they would refuse to come forth. And the, you can try and force them with the courts. That's going to take months, maybe even years. The election's in November. Also, one of the big uh, Republican defenses is you haven't talked to anyone that was in the room. There's a reason why, because Trump forbid them from doing so. We could have subpoenaed them, but then again, by the time that those courts solve the issue, if they ever do, November, the election could be tomorrow, you know, and in which case, how does that work, you know? I think in a large part of the, st uh, the strategic planning was, and this is just me spitballing here, like, hey, even if, a, even if impeachment doesn't work, A, we get to impeach Trump, we get to see what these investigations find, and the House is still investigating. Don't get me wrong. Like, they're still working on subpoenas for jo uh, John Bolton and people like that. But even if we get this wrong, we're going to know all this going into the November election rather than spending our two shots at the exact same time. You ready to call it? You ready I, to? I think I said everything I want to say. All right. Well, thanks for doing this. We needed, we needed a, a healthy dose of centrism on this podcast. This has been, this has been due for a while. <laughs>